Thanks, Bob. Hi, everybody. Hi. How you doing? Can I just, uh, first of all, apologize that I'm not Pastor Brent. I know that uh, he's young and handsome and intelligent. And I'm not. I know that. So just turn to the person next to you and say, I'm bitterly disappointed, but I think I'm going to work through it. Just go ahead and just get that off your chest right now, and uh, that'll be good. Hey, Pastor Brent uh, called me about uh, 10 o'clock this morning and uh, uh, making croaking noises, which either means he's sick or he went to the movies tonight and uh, wanted me to step in. He sounded pretty rough, actually. So he said, uh, he said, you can do anything you like if you just help me out and show up tonight. So I said, well, I... I have a number of songs that I believe the Lord has given me. And he said, no, you can't do anything you like. So uh, here's what I want us to do together this evening. Uh, We're coming up this weekend to a very important weekend in the life of our Timberline community. And that is our You Count Spotlight, where we're going to be thinking about what's been happening uh, through the You Count campaign Uh, in tackling human trafficking, not only around the world, but also in northern Colorado, right here. And so I thought it would be good for us tonight to step back and think about God's heart and passion for justice. Now, uh, I'm preaching this weekend. This is not the message I'm going to preach this weekend. So I don't want you to say, well, I already heard it Wednesday night, so I don't need to bother. It'll be a completely different deal. But I think it would be good for us to reflect Why are we doing all this stuff? Why is it actually important? And uh, we're going to look at at a number of uh, scriptures together. So let's dive in uh, right away. First of all, this passage from Job 31. Job 31. And Job says this, If I have denied the desires of the poor, or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, But from my youth I reared him as would a father, and from my birth I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing, or a needy man without a garment, and his heart did not bless me for warming him with the fleece of uh, my sheep. If I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from the shoulder, let it be broken off at the joint. For I dreaded destruction from God, and for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. And then uh, a couple of other verses uh, that are really important uh, in our study together tonight. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, perhaps very well known to many of us. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Isaiah chapter 61, I, the Lord, love justice. And then going over into the New Testament, the very, the very heartbeat of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6 and verse 33, very familiar words, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Uh, I became a Christian in 1973. Does anyone remember 1973 and you're willing to admit it? I became a Christian back then and things were very different. Things were very different back then. Everything was different. The music was different. The fashions were different and frankly horrendous. Um, There was a fashion demon, I believe, that was roaming the earth. Um, Somebody posted some Facebook photographs of me this week back in the 70s. And I, I look at them and I think, what was I thinking? Why did... I mean, first of all, I had hair. That was a bonus. 
Um, but also some of the clothes that I was wearing back then, I'm thinking, what, what was going on? You might be sitting there right now thinking, well, actually, we feel like that right now about what you're wearing. But that's not important right now. Everything was different, but the church was very different as well. And when I look back at the, the church primarily, actually back then exclusively, my experience was of the church in the UK. When I look back at the church then, I realise that there was very little going on in terms of social action and social engagement. Our, our priority basically went like this. Whatever the needs of the world, whatever compassionate issues arrive, arise, really our job is just to tell people about Jesus and get them sorted out for heaven and that's it. And so any sense of really being engaged in social action just really wasn't there. And those churches that were engaged in, in, in this, we, we kind of thought, well, they're just liberal churches. They've lost the plot. And what they're doing is not really terribly important. I think one of the reasons that that had happened is because whether we knew it or not, and I don't think that we knew it, we had lost sight of the power of some very powerful biblical words. How many know that words change their meaning over time? And words change their meaning with culture. I've told you before that uh, if you came with me to England and we were hanging out in England, uh, it would be entirely appropriate, ladies, if I wanted to compliment you, for me to say that I think that you're very homely. Because in England, that's a compliment. It means that you're hospitable and kind. How many know if I say that here, it's not going to go well? (laughs) And one of the illustrations I've used repeatedly at Timberline over the years is the biscuits and gravy illustration. You know, in England, uh, a biscuit is a cookie. A biscuit's a cookie. So when I first came here 25 years ago, I went out for breakfast. I said, what's on special? They said, biscuits and gravy. I said, you are sick. Why would you pour gravy over an Oreo cookie? That is a disgusting thing, and I'm glad you got independent. (laughs) What was going on here? What was going on is that words evolve. They change, and they change their meaning according to culture and often according to time and and generation. Let Let me mention three words that we are going to examine together that I believe we've often lost the full meaning of. The first word is the word holiness. The second is the word righteousness. And the third is the word mission. I want you to keep those three words in the back of your mind as we just share this time together. Why, why are we messing with the issue of human trafficking? Why is it important for us to go to our world and to our community, not only with words, but also with works of compassion. Well, let's, let's have a reflection and think about that. First of all, let's see this, everybody, that God's intention for everybody on this planet is something called shalom. I'm sure many of you have heard the word shalom. How many know what the word shalom means? And it means... Peace. It means the fullness, actually, of peace. It's, and we often know it as a, as a greeting. Um, uh, 
Jews exchange this term, shalom, Shabbat shalom, on the Sabbath. Uh, it's, a, it's a common greeting term. Perhaps we're uh, familiar with it from that basis. But actually, can I put it like this? The word shalom, biblically, is a very pregnant word. It's loaded with meaning. And the picture that would come to the mind of the Jew, if you say shalom, let me give you this picture, is of a man sitting beneath his own fig tree. He is right with God. He is right with his family. He is right with his neighbor. He is not plundering the environment. Holistically, he is experiencing peace. Shalom is what God wants every human being to experience. Jim Packer, the great writer and theologian, says that this word is a treasure chest word. It, it's, it's far more than peace and freedom from war and trouble. It, it means justice, prosperity, good fellowship, health, all-round communal well-being under God's gracious hand. So, so let's see this, first of all. That God's intention for every woman, man and child on this planet is to live in shalom. But let's go to the dark side for a moment and see that there is a dark strategy. Satan has a strategy which is diametrically opposed to the shalom of God and that strategy is about dehumanizing and commodifying people. When I look around our world and when I look at history, I begin to realize and I suggest to you that the same spirit that would take a woman or a young child and traffic them, the very same spirit that operates there is operating or was operating in the Nazi concentration camps of the Second World War. Because did you know that not only were six million Jews killed, and I put a picture of this woman with the barcode on her head representing trafficking, and here are children, I think, from Auschwitz. Did you know that the Nazis had a systematic process before they killed the Jews to dehumanize them? What I'm about to share with you is kind of gross. They, they, it's been described as excremental assault. What they did is they refused to allow them to have basic sanitary facilities. So they would be filthy. They would be covered in lice. There would be a, a loss of dignity. Then they tried to steal their Jewishness. So the women were told to take their prayer shawls and fashion them into underwear. With these terrible conditions, with uh, sickness and diarrhea... What was going on here? The Nazis were overseeing a program whereby faithful Jewish women were soiling that which they considered to be holy. They made them cut their prayer shawls up and put them in their shoes so that they would tread on that which was holy. Uh, I'm going to share something that someone might find offensive, so I... Uh, I, I hope you'll, you'll understand the reason for this. In, in the concentration camps, my understanding is that no prisoner was ever referred to by name or number. They were referred to as Scheiss. What is Scheiss? Scheiss is the German equivalent word 
for the cuss word that we use that begins with S and ends with T, which we often use when we're talking about poop. Sorry if that offends you, and I hope we're all grown up and no one goes out here saying, Pastor Jeff said poop on a Wednesday night. I mean, you know, let's get over that. The reality is that in this dehumanizing program, what they were trying to do was consistently steal the identity of those prisoners before they even killed them. So let's understand, let's see, that, that God's purpose for humanity, shalom, Satan's objective for humanity, a dehumanizing, a loss of identity, Does anyone remember Luke chapter 3 and and chapter 4 when Jesus goes into ministry and the first thing that is under attack in the wilderness of temptation is his identity. This is my beloved son, says the father. If you are the son of God, says Satan, if you will, with a hiss. Who do you think you are? You are nobody. This idea of dehumanizing and commodifying people, it's part of a, of a long-term dark strategy. Well, the third thing that we need to look at is I think we need to rediscover what holiness actually is. And holiness and the holy character of God speaks into this conflict between shalom and dehumanization. How, how does it speak to it? Well, well first of all, Holy, holiness is a big subject in the Bible, isn't it? Um, I believe that Pastor Brent has done a study on that during the Wednesday evenings. If he hasn't, I know he's going to. And uh, this call, God is holy, be holy for I am holy, is repeated no less than eight times in Scripture. Uh, Adjith Fernando is a, a popular theologian. He says that 1,400 of the 2,005 verses that the Apostle Paul wrote have got something to do with holiness. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Since we have these promises, dear friends, let's purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Hebrews 12.14 Make every effort to live in peace with all men. Shalom. And be holy. Uh, 2 Peter 3.11 You ought to live holy and godly lives. But let's face it, holiness is not a very popular word these days, is it? And one of the reasons for that is that holiness has had a bad rap. Holiness has been given a negative connotation uh, of, of piety. The Pharisees who were prancing around with their nose stuck in the air, uh, the frozen chosen who, who just uh, uh, postured and displayed their religion uh, for all to see. Um, just yesterday, just last night, I was chatting with somebody who told me... Uh, that a member of their family is a Christian, loves Jesus, but won't have anything to do with the church. Why is that? Well, the reason is because she was raised in an ultra-holiness group. How many know what I'm talking about? Where everything was wrong. And you certainly didn't have any fun. I mean, any idea of uh, fun was completely out of order. I remember being in one church, and and I was using some humor just by way of a change, and a a guy came up to me and said, we don't have fun in this church. We have joy. 
And I took one look at his face. I thought, you haven't got even one, pal, quite honestly. You know, that, that really is the truth. But, but holiness has been given this image of, uh, of being miserable or thoughtless rules and regulations. Again, I've talked about it before in Timberline. The Pharisees developed rules for everything. Can you pray if you're working in the top of a tree? They discussed that one. Can a man divorce his wife for burning a meal? It's not a good idea to say amen at this point, sir. Is a man ceremonially unclean for touching a mouse? If you're making bread while naked, (laughs) and then you want to use that bread for an offering, is it unclean? I mean, I've been worried about that one for quite a while, quite frankly. These are real rules and regulations that the Pharisees came up with. And then a big deal that they had was one of physical separation from the world. The word Pharisee comes from the word perishim, which means to, to be separate. And certain traditions in the church have interpreted separation as get away from the big bad world. You mustn't hang out with anybody that doesn't believe what you believe. In fact, I downloaded that idea in the early years of my Christian life. Whereas actually Jesus was completely separate morally, but engaged in everyday life with major PhD level sinners. And actually this idea of getting away from the world, this is not just theory that we're talking about as part of a Wednesday night discussion. Misunderstanding holiness has cost lives. So how's that work out? Rwanda. Rwanda, which experienced a revival in the 1930s, along with uh, many nations in Africa. And in the 1990s, it was estimated that 80% of the Rwandan population were believers. Imagine that. 80%. But get this. The general attitude amongst Rwandan Christians was that you shouldn't engage with the world, stay away from politics... That's dirty. That was the idea. And everything was narrowed down to personal piety, but not really engaging with cultural issues and social issues of the day. So when an aircraft carrying the Rwandan president was shot down in April 1994, this nation, which had 80% of alleged believers, that had just been taught, well, whatever your leaders tell you to do, you just go ahead and do it. And a terrible, terrible fight broke out between the Hutus and the Tutsis. And a million people died. Do we see how bad theology is costly? Because these people had not been taught to engage with their world. They'd just been taught to try and get away from their world. But actually, when we look at holiness... We see that authentic biblical holiness is, yes, about living a distinctive life, standing out from the crowd because we have a different purpose, a different agenda, a different morality. That doesn't mean that all Christians are good and all non-Christians are bad. Let's not get that idea. But we are a people who should be distinctive in our lifestyle, but it's not just about me not being a naughty person. Because when you look at the biblical doctrine of holiness, you see that all the way through, right from the beginning, holiness included caring for social justice. You say, well, give me a Bible verse for that. 
Well, how about Leviticus 19, which was a call to holiness that included caring for the poor, for the elderly, looking after those with disabilities, caring for the marginalised, and doing business with honesty. And as Israel moved away from being a rural culture, particularly under King Jeroboam, later in their history, they became very prosperous. The courts became corrupt, the rich oppressed the poor, and the prophets began to rise up to call the people back to a holiness that was not just about, well, I don't, I don't uh, do this list of particular things, but was about social justice as well. Uh, I love this verse in Jeremiah 22, speaking about King Josiah. This is what the prophet said of King Josiah. This is what the Lord said through the prophet. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me? Declares the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, when we are reaching out to our community, to our world, when we are crying out on behalf of those who are being trafficked, we're not just a bunch of Christian do-gooders. We are expressing the holy heart of God. What is it that James says in James 1.27? Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Do you see the both there? Personal integrity and social justice. Here's a quote you might be surprised by the source. The quote is this, the gospel of Christ knows of no religion but social religion, no holiness but social holiness. Who said that? Some trendy commentator? John Wesley, the great evangelist. Let's recover the breadth of the meaning of this word holiness. Everyone still with me? Raise your hand, nod, say amen. You still there? Well, let's move on and think fourthly about God's heart for righteousness and justice. I am, every now and again, I've mentioned this before, I I get to preach in, in different churches and go to conferences. Sometimes I can be at a conference for two or three weeks in three services a day. And I love to worship. Our worship teams do an amazing job here. Uh, but I, um, can I be either so honest? This is the Wednesday night crowd. Actually, I try and be honest on Sundays as well, just by way of a change. Every now and again, I get bored with singing all those songs. And, you know, I just think, sometimes, if I go to conferences and we sing for an hour, I start to feel sorry for God. <laughs> and man, I'm bored. I mean, he has to sit through this all the time. Omnipresence has its drawbacks. You know, this is, this is really quite a challenge. And I get a bit bored. And I've always felt a bit guilty about that, just occasionally feeling bored. And then I read these words where God gets bored, but for altogether different reasons. Listen to this, Amos chapter 5. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your hearts, but listen to this, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. What's God saying? He's saying, if we just worship, but we don't give a rip about our world, it sickens him. Strong stuff, isn't it? And God calls us to justice, 
and to righteousness. Now, now what's righteousness? It's one of those words that we've lost the power of. When, when we think about righteousness, we, we tend to think again that it's just about me doing the right thing. But the biblical word for righteousness means the rightness of God. And it, it's used in the Old Testament about weights and measures. It's used in the Old Testament about roads being straight. In other words, God wants us to realize that seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness is not just about not being naughty, or that it includes that, but is also to live with his passion to see things done rightly on the earth. So when a child dies in India tonight because five bucks worth of medical care is not available, that's not right. That's not right. And when the king has his way in the kingdom, rightness will prevail. And so the righteousness that we are called to seek, and righteousness is a a really big word, part of it is to say, God, we want to see it done right in our world. It is not right that women are trafficked. It is not right that the poor are oppressed. So we want to see the rightness of God come to our planet. Again, not just charity, but justice. Not just do-goodism, but kingdom righteousness. Well, the last thing I want to talk about tonight before we wrap this up is our hopeful response. You see... I think it's so important that we be a group of people who alongside other, other believers in northern Colorado, that we are actually mad enough to believe that we can change the world. And how can you change the world? Well, you change the world one life at a time. When one young person comes out from being trafficked, the world is different. When one family is fed, that has battled with poverty, with the vast number of the world living on less than one dollar a day. The world is different. And I think we need to recover a sense of hopefulness. Can I, can I wrap this up by giving us a, a little bit of a, a history lesson? 300 years ago in, uh, in Europe, the church believed that it could change the world. William Carey, the great father of missions, had a map. He was a, he was a shoemaker and he had a map on his, uh, in his store and he wrote all over the map. And William Carey was crazy enough to believe that the world could be changed. And in the late 1790s, that was the, that was the attitude. One missiologist said this. Listen to this about our brothers and sisters from two or three hundred years ago. They possessed an inexhaustible confidence in the power and grace of God and they believed that they stood on the brink of a time when the gospel of Christ was destined to renew and transform the whole of the earth. Wow. And there were some great hymns written around that time. Let me, let me quote one for you rather than sing it. Quoting it will be better. Isaac Watts, classic hymn, it will be familiar to you. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. 
His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, addressed the Baptist Missionary Conference in 1859, excuse me, 1858, and he said, listen to this, he said, when the gospel has had its day, wars must cease till the ends of the earth. These Christians believed that they could change the world. But around that time, there was an alternative theology that was gathering steam. And what I'm about to share with you is a massive generalization. It would take quite a long time to unpack this. But the headline is that there were people like John Nelson Darby who started to teach that the world was beyond hope. It was just going to get worse. And anyway, Jesus is coming, so let's just hang on if we can and get out of here as soon as we possibly can. Actually, and I want you to listen really carefully, I absolutely believe in the vitality of the message that Jesus is coming again. Let that be absolutely clear. But what we ended up with is instead of believing that we could change the world, we ended up with an escapology eschatology. What's that? We're getting out of here. It's all going to get worse. So please, come back quickly, Jesus. We can't change the world anymore. Prior to this kind of uh, conversation that went on, the church saw itself as a lighthouse, a beacon to the world. After this, the church started to see itself more like a lifeboat. Let's rescue a few people before Jesus comes back. I would suggest that we need to get our optimism back. Yes, Jesus is coming, but in the meantime, let's change the world. Let's change the world. One of the uh, evidences of that negativity is a hymn that you might be familiar with, and you might even really like it, so I hope I don't offend you. But this kind of, we're getting out of here soon, thinking, hold the fort, for I am coming. Philip Bliss's hymn. Listen to these words. Oh, my comrades, see the signal waving in the sky. Reinforcements now appearing, victory is nigh. Hold the fort, for I am coming. Jesus signals still. Wave the answer back to heaven. By thy grace we will. And instead of believing that we could change the world, we just focused on getting out of it. And I even hear Christians using that kind of thinking because, for example, let's stray into some interesting territory. Hey, this is the Wednesday night community. In politicizing issues of the environment and surrendering that as a political agenda rather than a kingdom agenda, which it is, why is it a kingdom agenda? Because we don't worship the planet, but we worship a God who created the planet and lent it to us. Therefore, sensible appropriate kingdom-rooted environmentalism should be a part of the church's heartbeat because God loves his creation. Says originally that it was good, been messed up by sin. But this kind of escapist thinking has led some people to say, well, it's all going to be burned up anyway, isn't it? So frankly, who gives a rip? 
How many know that if your teenage son treated his bedroom like that, the, that biblical prophecy would be exacted in your house because the battle of Armageddon would take place. Let's not just look as escapists, but let's see that we can change the world. You know, with one minute left, and then I'd like you to listen to a piece of music. I, I want to leave uh, the last word to a lady called Melba Magay. She was at the forefront of the people power revolution in the Philippines that toppled the unjust Marcos regime. And uh, she, uh, she said this about changing the world. So this we believe. A kingdom of justice and righteousness has begun and it's making its way into people's lives and denting structures that continue to oppress and dehumanize. Such work is seldom done in the corridors of power nor in the halls of the great. Often it is in the many small acts of integrity and goodness that many faceless men and women do every day, believing that behind the face of an evil that is strong is an unseen good that is stronger even when it wears the face of weakness. It is this daily practice of hope which keeps most of us going, keeping the monsters at bay as humbly and powerfully we are caught up in the kingdom fire and the stubborn grace that shines at the heart of existence. Why does this matter? Because actually, we can play our part in changing the world. A friend of mine back in the UK is a guy called Matt Redman. And Matt has written a song about changing the world. And uh, I don't know whether you're going to like it. It might not be to your musical taste. But uh, I'd love you to hear the heartbeat of the song. It was recorded live back in, in England. And you can sense some of the excitement that is is there about changing the world so so have a listen and then i'm going to come back and pray we'll break bread together and continue into our world that so needs change have a listen
Yes, Lord. It's a simple prayer, isn't it? Let's face it, we don't know what it looks like. But we can keep saying, yes, Lord. In our world. Would you bow your heads with me? We want to say yes to you, Lord. We want to say yes to your righteousness. Yes to justice. And often when we look at the challenges of our world, we feel very powerless. But without hype, Lord, or overstating our capacity, we would like to continue to be part of change. So that one at a time, people's lives around this earth the right thing, the righteous thing is done so be with us we pray now as we in the breaking of bread we say yes again to you we agree together in Jesus name